Welcome again, everybody, to another episode of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune, head of the Farragut Square Group, and with me, as always, is Chris Whirling, partner in the Chicago office of McDermott, Will & Emery. Chris and I are, are both fresh back from our own uh, partner's retreat, so still cooling off from the lovely weather down in Florida. Yeah, Brian, it was good to see you there. We had an opportunity to speak with a lot of the lawyers and consultants across the McDermott network, and the general sentiment is that healthcare deal markets are continuing strong. Recently announced uh, CVS acquisition of Oak Street Health continues a line of very interesting large strategics getting involved in primary care and healthcare. Private equity markets are picking back up again, and we're seeing a number of physician practice deals that our teams are working on. And we're back again for a very special episode. Always happy to kick off with our highly anticipated banker corner that we do at least once a quarter. We have two special guests today who are good friends, Kyle Brown and John Tideman, both from the healthcare practice at Brown Gibbons Lang & Company. They are very active bankers and we're looking forward to talking about what's going on in that space. So let's kick off. You know, I'd like to just say right, right now in February, let's do a quick snapshot of the current state of the market and outlook for that. Let me kick it to you, Kyle. Walk us to present, like what's the current state of the deal market? Yeah, thanks, Brian and Chris and great to be on. I know we've collaborated on mandates in the past and it's great to be collaborating again for this podcast. I'm oh, a big, fan, big fan of the show. So looking forward to it. In the current state, 2022 limped across the finish line. Deal flow in healthcare services and more specifically provider services overall for the year is about flat for 2021. And the first half of 2022 had some continued pent up demand from residual effects of COVID. Then when you saw flash forward during Q4, had some disruption in the credit markets and lenders stopped lending. So Q4 was frankly abysmal in terms of statistics for deals getting done. That being said, Q1 of 2023, where you had uncertainty in the credit markets, which led to an absence of deals getting done. Now there's a new steady state. Deals are back in full force. Valuations have admittedly cooled off multiple. So the current state is categorized as quality over quantity. There's a lot of attention uh, being paid to premium assets. There's a lot of money still chasing healthcare services deals and in particular provider services. And we're expecting for 2023, there to be decent activity. Yeah, that's right. One theme at JP Morgan was things might be a little slow out of the gate, but I don't remember what your view was at the time, but the point was that PE still has a mandate always to put money to work and all of the banks signed up a lot of assets uh, to bring to market last year that when the credit market went sideways, they didn't. But when we would kind of pin them on how long might a slowdown last, yeah, a lot of people threw out, well, things will probably get really active as you head into the spring and particularly around May. And my comment at the time was, well, that's not really much of a shift from a normal year. Yeah, that's a great point, Brian, because June of 2022, a lot of the conversations with PE-backed assets in particular were Q1 of 2023 was going to be big, March into April. And that looked 
looking at it now, it feels like September and October are the new March, April for this year. So 2023, we're talking about it internally. We talk about it all the time. And our prediction is it's a bit of the mullet year where upfront first half, all business is we're having conversations. Folks are looking back at mergers of equals, a platform building, looking at organic growth initiatives, any operational initiatives with the anticipation that there is going to be a flurry of M&A activity in the second half of this year, perhaps even pushed to Q4. So for all the service providers, probably going to be an even more hectic holiday season. That's interesting. Certainly, there's definitely a lot of interest in in different sectors as keeping us on the phone and, and on the road right now. It seems like people are getting ready to get ready in the back end of the year. So another question that, that I think has come up, if you look at 19 and 20 and 21 as well, it seemed like the, the theme was we're at the, the peak bull market for M&A and pretty much almost every asset that came out sold. Now people are a bit more choosy, I think. So talk a little bit about that. Brian, I think that's right. As time has gone on, not only is it market driven, right? People are being a little bit more careful in the current environment. Interest rates are higher, less Lenders are, are more in tune to things like pro forma adjustments and things like that. But setting all of the, the market dynamics aside, I think just generally speaking, we're seeing a heightened sense education, you know, bringing in folks like yourselves, bringing in the, the quality of earnings and these other third party advisors to better understand really what it is you're looking at, lifting up every stone and, and being careful with where you're putting dollars to work. People have sort of figured out that pro forma adjustments can be deadly with respect to a, a PPM investment in particular. And in a and you couple that with a market like the one we're in, and you're seeing just a heightened sense of scrutiny, a heightened sense of, hey, do I really understand this business, what the levers are for growth, and can I build something out of this? Where a few years ago, you might have been more aggressive in that regard. And today you are taking a step back and saying, you know, let's be a little more careful, a little more thoughtful and, and approaching investment theses that way. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, as the deal markets return, we're seeing a little bit of a compression or decrease in multiples. Is that across the board or are we seeing some multiples in certain areas hold steady? We're seeing it across the board. So if I mentioned multiples down one to one and a half turns, that's on a base of 10 you know, on average, maybe slightly higher. So call it 10 to 15% off. And you have counter prevailing forces in some newer sectors of more mature sectors where there's already a number of private equity platforms, perhaps feel it a bit more where folks are saying, okay, I need something more novel where the market has multiple expansion to, to combat this. It's a mixed bag, but I would say across the board because folks are just taking a harder look at the assets within sectors. So that makes sense. Do you have a de novo growth plan that augments perhaps a traditional roll-up strategy that is dependent on debt for example, is there a true management team to back that can navigate through tumultuous times? So those are just fundamentals of business. Folks are looking within those, but we haven't seen a wide range where you know, behavioral health's down four turns and you know, ophthalmology is only down two turns. It's been fairly consistent level setting multiples across sectors. Very interesting. So a broader reset on expectations. All right. So let's move on. One thing everybody always wants to hear from our various banks 
Maker Friends, of course, is, is looking across the continuum of healthcare providers and services. What's hot and what do you guys think uh, is interesting? Yeah, so for this, Kristen, Brian, I think we'll save post-acute and behavioral, sticking within our dojo of provider services. We broadly categorize the universe into four sub-verticals. So outsource clinical services, primary care, single specialty, and retail. And we don't have uh, time to discuss all of those. We'll touch on a couple. The outsource clinical services, really no comment there. Activities down in general. So we'll save that. What's a good example for people in terms of like, what's your sort of quintessential outsource clinical service provider? Anesthesia or emergency medicine, or radiology. Interesting that you say that. You, you mentioned two two out of three of those are often caught up these days in questions about no surprises uh, legislation, right? Yes. So they, absent of the markets cooling, you've had some specific regulatory headwinds within those. And generally speaking, contract-based businesses, you're reliant. The old model was all to the acute care setting. Hospitals margins have gotten pinched. You know, yeah. It flows back to vendors vendor aggregation, vendor selection. So that it, our general thesis there is get to the outsource setting. So you fi- you're finding some specific niche companies that clinical services trying to be the service provider to those that are focused on outpatient services. That's very good. And how about primary care? Yeah, so primary care has been an interesting market for, for several years now, right? And caught a lot of headlines during like the SPAC era where you saw a lot of these sort of full risk capitated models getting public one way another. A lot of those happened to be in South Florida, just given the payer environment there was set up very well for some of those businesses to have a lot of success. And full risk capitated models are are great. But I think the interesting observation that we've seen with respect to primary care is that fee-for-service has not gone away. There's a number of different models and and companies that call themselves primary care, and many of them are still rooted in some sort of fee-for-service paradigm, right? And look, they're all trending towards risk-based in one shape or another. And the most interesting of those fee-for-service categories, they have to all have some novel concept for them to be unique and interesting to an investor, at least in our opinion, right? Whether it's a rural strategy catering to those patients who have an access issue, right? How do you get good, solid primary care to markets that don't have a major metropolitan with a bunch of PCPs to see their their patients, right? That's a decided need in this country, right? And so you see a lot of primary care dollars and investment going towards prudent, successful for rural, rural moss, right? In the urban setting, you still have a number of fee-for-service players, but you see the, the trends there more towards like concierge medicine, right? Patients yeah. in those big urban markets want convenience. They want a high level of, ten- of attention from their provider. They want to be able to get their COVID shot tomorrow. They don't want to have to wait three weeks for Walgreens to be open, right? Whatever it might be. And they're willing to pay a premium for that. And so you're seeing a lot of these concierge high-end models pop up, particularly in the the urban and suburban markets around the country, right? And then where you're starting to see another unique intersection, we worked with a client who was employing this model last year, is the confluence of urgent care with primary care. And that does a couple things that are interesting and sort of supportive to the overall healthcare system and preventive medicine and getting out in front of things. Two main themes there when you couple urgent care with primary care. First is that access component, right? Making sure that you have the right patients and the right capabilities to see patients 
patients, keep them out of the ER, make sure that they're going to a low cost setting. But then you flip that in the second main or unique opportunity when you have both urgent care and primary care together is really a marketing function, right? So, so when you're out there advertising on social media or radio and television, like you might be as a traditional PCP, if you have an urgent care center where you're seeing unique new patient volume and you learn, you see the same patient in there two or three times and that the, the doctor or the mid-level servicing that urgent care center that day says, hey, listen, do you have a primary care physician that you're going to regularly for whatever it might be? And they say, no, well, all of a sudden you've got a built-in referral channel to say, okay, well, maybe you should go see Dr. So-and-so on Monday. I notice you've come in with the same you know, symptoms three different times over the last six months. Maybe you should have a conversation about that. And so it, it serves two purposes, right? Getting that as much access in the lowest cost setting as possible to patients of a given population, but also rerouting those patients back into your own sort of closed loop provider network on the PCP side. So there's a number of different and interesting areas of primary care, and they're not all. Again, of course, that risk-based capitated model is, is super interesting and where a lot of this, I think, is ultimately going. But there are opportunities on the fee-for-service side, especially with some of these groups who are now looking down the barrel saying, risk-based is coming. How do we best position ourselves for that? Maybe private equity can help us. Maybe they have some experience doing that. And you know, maybe we can dip our toe in the water. We can start with an ACO before we start to talk to the MA folks. And, and how do we get to the point where we're reporting outcomes the right way to track our success and ultimately be more successful in those new models, right? And, and all of this sets up well for professionalization of the back office, bringing in institutional capital to make investments in systems, equipment, and technology, and things like that. And so the interest and the need for primary care continues at a, at a rapid clip. It's just, in our opinion, some of the more interesting pockets are in that what looks like a more an old school model with some sort of unique wrapper around it versus the the flashy South Florida full risk type deal. Right. Also fascinating in that in the investment in that space is just a lot of these models really have, I think, from, from our work, been designed to really achieve the right balance to make the sort of compensation opportunity attractive to GPs. Because of course, the question, are we going to have a crisis and not enough GPs to serve the demanding needs of primary care? And, and it seems like some of these models might be solving for that. Oh, I think you're right. There was a time when the only people in the world that cared about buying primary care doctors were hospitals and health systems, right? And they were interested at that time in locking down their referral base and all those kinds of things. And those doctors were paid a couple hundred grand a year. Those now, conversely, to your point, who wants to go to med school and spend all those years learning what they need to learn to, to earn at a level that's less than their peers and other specialties? And, and one way to attract more providers to a specialty is to find ways to allow them to earn more money. And so some of these models that have invested in urgent care or imaging or lab or other, other ancillaries or where you're building out sort of exceptional diagnostic capability in the confines of a, uh, a primary care group, and then looking at ways to use that capability to make money in a risk-based model, be it an ACO or MA or, or, or whatever you're, you might be interested in or whatever your market might bear, all of a sudden you're finding ways to, to create significant earning potential for these primary care doctors, which presumably will attract more med students to the specialty uh, down the road. So it hopefully yeah. will become a self-fulfilling prophecy in that regard. That's right. Bottom line, nobody wants to spend the three decades after after med school still spending all your disposable income on your loan. Right. Let's talk about single disease specialties. Obviously, that keeps us very busy each year, among other things. And as in any given year, there will definitely be some single silo PPMs that, uh, that are going to be interesting. So what do you like in that vertical? Sure. Maybe, maybe I'll start. I think a general theme is that the investor community is moving up the 
acuity curve is sort of how we phrase it, right? And there's more and more interest in specialties like cardiology and orthopedics, the specialties that are, you know, highly surgical and procedure-based in nature, specialties that sometimes have interplay with a local health system, the specialties where the physicians are compensated in different ways than the traditional sort of percent of revenue that you might see in dermatology or ophthalmology, for example. And so a lot of where we're seeing interest in the single disease state is that the specialties that are in what we call discovery mode on the right model, right? Meaning whether it's compensation, whether it's, are you trying to throw a lot of dots on the map? Are you trying to, to, to be regionally dense? You see, in, for instance, in cardiology, it's a very unique set of platforms evolving, right? Some are all over the place. Some are, are in one region. The COP model is almost bespoke to each, not only each group that gets acquired within one of these platforms, but it can be bespoke to the physicians within the group. Meaning a lot of these folks, whether you're an electrophysiologist or an interventional cardiologist or general cardiologist, you're doing very different things day to day. Your cost structure and your, your frankly, your individual P&L is very different from other folks, even within the same group. So you got to find unique ways to monetize that, right? And create an investor model. And so we're seeing in particular in orthopedic and cardiology, more of a scrape model, right? Get to an EBPC earnings before physician comp or before partner comp, and then scrape some level off of that, but largely leave the comp model that's in place, whether it be PL or otherwise, and scrape 30% or whatever it might be to the MSO and, and monetize it that way. So that's really the theme that we're seeing in cardiology that's a specialty that has come alive more rapidly than we've seen in any other specialty to this point. Two years ago, there were no what I'll call traditional cardiology platforms, right? There was vascular surgery and some things sort of in and around cardiology, but the cardiology PPM really was not there more than about two years ago. And, and over the last two-year period, we now see about 10 established platforms in the space. And those came about a number of different ways. There are a handful that were big enough independent groups to be a platform in sort of the traditional private equity model, which was buy a group, build some infrastructure around that, and then go out and do add-ons and grow that. The problem in cardiology though, is there, there are not that many large groups that could be a platform in the traditional sense because 70 to 80% of those cardiologists are actually employed by health systems. So what you have is you have a lot of these big groups that were acquired over the last 15 years by their local health system. And those who stayed independent tended to be the smaller groups in their markets. Some of them have successfully grown since that point and became the Pima and some of these other platforms that you've seen out there. But a lot of the groups tended to stay smaller, right? They weren't making a ton of money because they weren't allowed to do anything in the ASC. And, and so therefore they weren't as prone to investing in diagnostics and imaging like PET-CT. And they stayed small by nature of who they were. And they were just sort of plodding along until, uh, you know, the big catalyst was CMS allowing a number of CPT codes in cardiology to transfer to the outpatient to the ASC. And yep. the biggest one being PCI, which I think technically hit the radar in late 2019, and I believe was approved like January 1st, 2020, where the investor community and anybody who was sort of paying attention said, wow, okay, CMS is really serious about getting procedural work in cardiology out of the hospital into the ASC. And so you, you started to look at the market and see that there were these fractured groups 
of what was left not employed by health systems. And those, and a lot of the investors have said, okay, fine, we don't need that big platform group because there's so much potential here, whether it be on the facility side with the ASC or on the diagnostic side with PET CT. All of these things cost money, again, which not necessarily every cardiologist was willing to make those investments as a small group where the risk was very concentrated among two or three partners. But you talk about taking three or four of those small groups, putting them together, bringing in a, a private equity investor whose job it is, is to is to fund avenues for growth like ASCs, like diagnostics and, and other ancillaries. And it really sets up perfectly. And so I think you have this perfect storm where you had the groups that are big enough to become platforms did so and are doing so. And, and then you've got another tangent of investors who are saying, I'll just start small, roll up my sleeves and get after it. Right. And so as a result of all of those sort of dynamics, today we have 10 traditional PPM cardiology platforms. And I think we probably get to 15 or 20. I don't know that we'll ever get to peak in Durham with something like 40, uh, but I think we will get to 15 or 20 platforms before we start to see the platforms start to consolidate. And I think you're going to see a lot of folks in that sort of let's take a few small groups and use that as our starting point. There are a lot of markets where this works really well. The question we have is when you look at specific markets, you have some markets that are primarily dominated by one health system. What in your mind is that sort of catalyst that convinces like cardiologists in that market that they might be better off if they could break away and not you know, be part of the, the large system empire? Well, economically speaking, they'd almost certainly be better off if they broke away, right? If they're an, an employee of a health system, it's, it's unlikely that they're participating in any way on the technical side or the facility fee side. And unless they're like a really unique health system that created something cool for their cardiologists, there's a couple of different things to pay attention to with respect to the hospital interplay in cardiology. One, the writing's on the wall. And I think a lot of those health systems know that. And so there's going to be a bifurcation of health system participation in private equities consolidation of cardiology, if that makes sense. Right. And what I mean by that is that there's always going to be a health system out there who is a bit more on the stubborn side grinds their heels in and says, look, we're going to hold on to everything we can for as long as we can. But more what we're seeing with respect to those health systems participating in cardiology is a willingness to be forward thinking, right? And say, okay, we're going to lose this volume anyway. Why don't we try to participate in on the back end in the ASC where, where all this volume is going to land? Maybe we don't care so much if our cardiologists are employed or, or not anymore, because at the end of the day, a lot of health systems and the institution of a hospital was never really meant to employ doctors. It was meant to be a host facility for surgery and other procedural type work. And, and so the idea that those doctors may eventually spin out, I think could actually be a benefit to a lot of health systems who, who choose to be forward thinking in that regard, right? And they may say, okay, we'll go, you know, go ahead and, and do what you want to do. If you want to join up with this, this private equity backed MSO and build an ASC, there's always going to be a need for us, the health system in the broader cardiology ecosystem at some level, right? Everything can't go to the ASC, but maybe, you know, we'll participate participate with you. And maybe that means we can bring something intangible to the table as a partner in that venture. So yeah. that's been, and, and we talked to a couple of the facility developers in cardiology. We talked to a lot of cardiologists. It seems to me that that's where this is going is more of a cooperative dynamic between private equity, the physicians,
physicians and the hospitals versus something that's going to turn out to be adversarial. Now, of course, that's market dependent. Of course, those markets that might be CON states, the health systems and hospitals will have more power to exert their will on these situations. But by and large, our expectation is that there will be a cooperative outcome amongst those sort of three main constituents. It's a fascinating space. It's still fun to watch it keep evolving and developing. Okay, the last Absolutely. the last leg on your table is, of course, uh, providers that are purely retail facing. So talking about maybe things like a little dermatology or plastic surgery. And now what do you think 2023 holds in that arena? Yeah, 2023, most market participants would say that elective procedures are going to be put to the test. We don't disagree, but also interesting in this deal environment right now is the pure buy and build strategies being put to the test. Sponsors aren't looking to refinance right now to club up to get you know, fresh debt in the door. And depending on where funds are in their life, the amount of dry powder fundraising cycles can really determine behavior on how these buy and build strategies are looking to exit. And so it's an interesting paradigm where normally you'd say, look, multiples are down, let's just wait. But you you do have folks that are paying a premium for pipelines, perhaps more so than we saw in the past couple of years. So actionable pipeline of acquisitions. And if you need fresh capital to do so, then going to market may make sense right now. And we're having a lot of those conversations. So it's an interesting balance of was it a buyer's market, but you, know, you can roll over more if you if you're bullish on the company. That's less applicable to private equity clients, but that is an option. And so what we are seeing, speaking to elective procedures being put to the test, is a very much an appetite for the cosmetic services. We happen uh, to advise on a, a couple plastic surgery deals that had a med spa component. And I think what is very interesting is the interplay between med spa, more invasive plastic surgery, and dermatology. And dermatology has got the medical and the cosmetic focus. If you, if you go to you know, med spa, that's had a little bit, it was a little bit ahead of pure play plastic surgery in terms of, in terms of investor interest. I think Brian and Chris, we all live more in the reimbursed services world, but you went for more cash pay procedures, you introduce consumer funds, a larger audience for an exit, which is an attra- yeah. which is attractive if you're an investor, attractive if you're an independently held company. So you've got the med spa component that just has its own challenges because while you're not going to have provider concentration, it just needs to be very, very voluminous because the bang for the buck per store contribution to the financial scorecard is not nearly as much as in these higher acuity uh, procedures. So the interplay there, you see folks going at the pure play med spa, see folks at plastic surgery. What we've seen is the interplay between plastic surgery and med spa works very well. There has been historically, derm and med spa has not been the best option. And then you've got plastic surgery and dermatology, historically not much traction, much more interest there now. Seeing a lot of the larger strategics augmenting their market presence with plastic surgery. And, and naturally there's cross-pollination between all these services. So we think that it's going to be another big year for cosmetic sales services on the retail medicine front. Well, I'd just love to thank uh, Kyle and John for joining us this week. Always fascinating to watch how the year starts to roll out. So uh, we look forward to talking to you and, and everybody else as the year keeps going on. Just want to make a few quick announcements for everybody before we close up today. In April is our practice management and surgery center event. That's April 11th and 12th in Nashville. That's followed the next day on April 
April 13th by our value-based care summit. So we really have three days of practice management and physician services in Nashville. If you're interested in signing up for that event, drop an email to Brian or I or any of your contacts at McDermott or Farragut Square, and we'd be happy to get you that information. Kyle and John and the BGL team will be down there in force, and we'll look forward to hosting everyone and having a great discussion, very in-depth on some of the topics we went through today. That should be very exciting. So lots to come in the future and more podcast episodes and driving the deal coming your way. Thank you again, Kyle and John. Hope everybody has a great week. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you, everybody. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Thank you.